I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Let's remember where we are in our systematic study through this book. The continued acts of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus through his Holy Spirit indwelled church. And this has been a, a study that has been exciting and encouraging as we have seen the acts of the apostles, the acts of the church, and thereby seeing the acts of our Lord. Now we have worked through to this section of scripture where salvation now is offered freely to all people without regard to nationality, creed, gender, and of special note, without regard to any affiliation with Judaism. I have been surprised at how many modern commentators and preachers when addressing this passage in Acts 13 say the same thing. But I also agree with their statement, so I'm going to say something just like it. Because of the events of Acts 12 and 13, uh, 13 specifically in our view today, sending missionaries to bring the gospel to Turkey and into Europe, we are here today. I mean that on several levels, there would be no United States of America had the gospel of Jesus Christ not come to these areas. We would not be here, worshipers of Jesus Christ. And this to say that we would not be here, but for these events in Acts 13, these actions of Paul and Barnabas, oh, I'm not supposed to call him Paul until halfway through the sermon, Saul and Barnabas, uh, this is not to give credit or glory to these men who did this work. They certainly labored well for Christ and for the cause of Christ, the kingdom of Christ. But the glory does not go to them. All glory, all credit goes to God and his providential hand. God's plan to bring salvation to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, that plan that Jesus Christ had foretold is now unfolding. And every Gentile Christian looks back on these historical events in Acts, and we thank God for his kindness. This passage before us today is an interesting one. As we, and I want to talk about it before we read it, so as we read, we'll kind of know what we're looking for. Uh, in these verses, there are two Antiochs. There are two Pauls. There are two Jesuses. Recently, we heard of Antioch, the city where Barnabas and Saul were ministering, the city from which they were sent out uh, to do this missionary work. This Antioch is a city in Syria, so some refer to it as Syrian Antioch. 
But in verse 14, there's another city named Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, which is located in the Galatian province in Asia Minor. So we have two cities named Antioch and we have to keep that straight in our minds. We have in this passage, Saul, who from verse nine forward will be called Paul or Paulus. And we know him as the Apostle Paul. And then we find in this passage that there is a proconsul or a governor named Sergius Paulus. So another Paul. We know that this passage and these missionaries and the gospel that they preach is about Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And then we find in this passage a man named Bar-Jesus. Elymas Bar-Jesus. And he is just called in verse 6, Bar-Jesus. Bar is an Aramaic word meaning son of. So this Elymas was the son of another man named Jesus. Some of you may find that shocking. How is that? Uh, well, Jesus or Yeshua would have been a common name. As a matter of fact, it's a common name today. Do you know anybody named Joshua? <laughs> that's, the, that's the name we're talking about. It, it, it's a common name. So there would have been many men named the same name as Jesus Christ. Now, when we add Christ, we're adding a title. And now we're talking about someone specific, someone particular. When we speak of Jesus of Nazareth, we're talking about someone particular, someone specific. But we have this other man called Bar-Jesus. Uh, and as we read, it's interesting. This man, Bar-Jesus, means the son of Jesus. So I'm going to tell you how my weird mind works. I grew up uh, with Superman cartoons. And then there's the anti-Superman. Y'all remember him? Bizarro Superman. Yeah, this bar Jesus, I kind of think of him like bizarro. He's the flip side of everything that Christ stood for, everything that Jesus was. Jesus is righteousness, and we're going to find that this man hates righteousness and stands against righteousness. Uh, okay, now I'm thinking that's why I didn't put it in my notes because you should <laughs> say something. This man. Elymas Bar-Jesus sets himself against Christ. So you could think of him really as an anti-Christ. He sets himself against Christ and against the gospel and against the missionaries preaching the gospel. So knowing all of these things, two Antiochs, two Pauls, and two Jesuses, we read this text, Acts 13, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through verse 12. Now there were prophets and teachers at Antioch in the church that was there. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. When While they were serving the, uh, the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set Barnabas and Saul apart from me for the work 
to which I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. Let me just tell you that is John Mark as their helper. Verse six, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man, Sergius Paulus, summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared at him and said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we pray that you would hide this preacher behind the cross, that you would open our eyes to see your word, to understand it, to clearly receive it. God, we pray that you would sanctify the saints. And Lord, we pray that you would save Sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we considered the first three verses of this chapter and how the sending out of Barnabas and Saul as missionaries can serve as a guide for the church in missionary efforts from that point in time all the way until the Lord returns. We need to be doing missionary work in the same way that it was established in the word of God. Today we pick up in verse four, last time we just read the first part, they went. Today we pick up in verse four and we'll work forward and see what is in this passage for us. So let's dig in verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. They went down to salute. They did not make an attempt to discern the secret decree of God. Think for a moment how much time is spent by people who are professing Christians trying to find out the secret decree of God. If we can just do that, then we got it. They did not seek the secret will of God. Barnabas 
was from Cyprus. This meant they had contacts in Cyprus, probably family in Cyprus. They would have places to stay in Cyprus. Cyprus was relatively close. Now, in our day, with our fast-moving automobiles, we would call Cyprus really close. For them, it was a little more of a journey, but it was relatively close. This was a decision to go to Cyprus that made sense. Many people think if God is in something, it's going to be bizarre and it's not going to make any sense. I heard Don Lindblad say, the spirit rarely contradicts common sense. Spirit rarely contradicts common sense. The spirit, I would say this, the spirit never contradicts good sense because good sense is the follow spirit. The missionaries obeyed God, they went, they trusted God as they went, and they went the way that made sense. Christians, this is how we are to live life. Are you supposed to buy the blue car or the red car or the house on A Street or the house on Z Street? Obey God, trust God, and make the decisions that make sense. And God's provident hand is not so weak that you're going to mess it up. This is what they did. They obeyed God, they trusted God, and they went the way that made sense. Verse 5 says, when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. This Salamis was apparently a large place that had more than one, a large city that had more than one synagogue. Sometimes when missionaries go out, they wonder how you should start. I remember speaking to a missionary who was going to an, another country and was saying, I don't know how we're going to get started when we get there. I'm not sure what we're going to do. It may take us two or three years to establish a place of worship and a church. And I thought, that's too long. That's too long. You need a place to worship. You need a church. How do you begin ministering for Christ in a new place? Well, Saul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul at this point, had no such problem. Remember that Barnabas was a Jew. Remember that Saul was a Jewish rabbi. So we can imagine that Saul's look would likely have at least hinted at the fact that he was a Jewish rabbi. So when they walked into a synagogue, there would be opportunity. And we'll see next week as, as Saul preaches, as Paul preaches his first sermon in Acts 13, that there was opportunity because he was recognized in the synagogue as a rabbi. This is the place where these missionaries started. They had an automatic in. They had a place to begin at the synagogues. And this would be the pattern 
for the remainder of this work that they would do together. They would go to the Jews. They would go to the synagogue. They would eventually be rejected and they would go to the Gentiles. Verse 5 says, and they also brought John as their helper. This is John Mark, not the apostle John, not some other John. This is John Mark that they brought. John Mark, let me just remind you of who this man is. John Mark is the author of the gospel of Mark. If you remember in chapter 12, the church, when they met to pray for Peter, they met in the home of Mark's mother, Mary. So this was John Mark. His mother had hosted that prayer meeting. It's likely that John Mark's family home was the place where the last supper was held. The place where the Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. After that supper, we read about in the Gospels and especially in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus and the disciples retired to the garden. There Jesus was betrayed by Judas and arrested and there was a great skirmish and the disciples were scattered and the gospel of Mark tells us that there was a young man hiding. Apparently he had followed Jesus and the disciples out into the garden without getting dressed. So he was wrapped in a sheet. And when a soldier tried to grab him, he grabbed the sheet. And this young man let go of the sheet and ran home in an embarrassing fashion. He got away and we believe that this was a teenage boy named John Mark, the same guy. Now here in Acts 13, we find John Mark grown up or at least partially grown up. It, it seems evident in the following verses that John Mark still had a little maturing to do, but he is grown up. We know from other passages of scripture that this John Mark is also Barnabas's cousin. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Barnabas and Saul, we're heading out. We're going on a missionary journey. We need some help. I got a cousin that can help us out. Let's do that. We bring John Mark. He was Barnabas's cousin and he was later Peter, the apostle Peter's friend and Peter becomes a primary source of information as Mark writes his gospel. Mark was not there for everything that he wrote in the gospel of Mark and Peter was a primary source. This is John Mark. This is the one that they took along and we're told here they took him as a helper. He is a helper in something. He was a helper in a way that he just carried the bags and did the laundry and the cooking and took care of all the things we didn't want to do. And that might make sense. That could have been what's happening here. But the word used as helper may indicate that John Mark was more of a helper in the ministry of the word. That's how the word helper is used elsewhere. It may indicate that he was a helper in the ministry of the word. But we're, we see this evident order that comes out. Paul from verse nine, we're going to call him Paul from now on. From Paul from verse nine takes a place of prominence. Paul is the apostle 
the main guy. Barnabas is his number two, and John Mark is the helper. And there may have been some others that traveled with them, but that's the, that's the order that we see. Paul now takes a place of prominence over Barnabas. Barnabas has been the number one and Saul the number two. Now Paul is the number one and Barnabas the number two. That may have played some part in John Mark abandoning and, and going back home. He may not have liked the regime change. We don't know, but there was some maturing that takes place there. And we'll see that as, as we continue in our study. Verse six says, when they had gone through the whole of the island, as far as Paphos, they found a magician. A magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. We are introduced here to two men, Sergius Paulus, who is a governor, proconsuls, the same thing here. And we're told he is a man of intelligence. He is a man who, who is able to reason logically, think for himself. But he is surrounded by people. He is surrounded by trusted advisors, probably from different perspectives so that he would have a fully orbed view of things and being an intelligent man could make decisions as to what he needed to do. He would have been surrounded also by those who were his friends, those who were enjoyable to have around. They weren't there for counselors. They just were there uh, to be friendly. They didn't serve any business or governmental purpose. And then there would have been those who would be his attendants, those who would take care of all that stuff that needed to be done, those who did the grunt work. So the proconsul is surrounded by these people. Bar-Jesus, whose given name was Elymas, was one of these people in Sergius Paulus's entourage. He is one of those there. And he apparently thought himself to be an important person in that entourage, a person who gave counsel. And that is what we find him doing. Elymas was a magician, we're told. This would have been unlawful. He was a Jew, we're also told. This would have been unlawful for a Jew. But he is a Jew. And the text tells us he is a Jewish false prophet and a magician. This probably indicates some mixture of Judaism, traditions, ceremonies, mixed with mysticism, occult, magic. This is who Elymas the magician is. Apparently, Elymas Bar-Jesus, the Jewish false prophet magician, was an advisor to the proconsul Paulus, and he had some level of influence and he would try to use that influence for evil. Verse seven says, this man, the proconsul Paulus, summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. We don't know why. He is a man of intelligence. Perhaps he was done with the false worship, the false religions that surrounded him. Perhaps he could see through the falseness of those things. And he wanted to hear something else. But he sought to hear the word of God. I pray that God would grant us this mercy today. That sinners would have a desire to hear the word of God. We don't know what he knew. He was an intelligent man. So perhaps he had heard and had some knowledge of Christ. Perhaps he had some idea of what Paul and Barnabas would preach, but he invited them 
or it says that he summons them. This may have been a little stronger than an invitation. He summons them, but they took the opportunity so that they could come and preach the gospel. Verse 8 says, But Elymas the magician, or Elymas Magus, uh, for so his name is translated, he was opposing Saul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. I'm going to do that. I've been very careful to say Saul all along, and now I'm going to be really having a tough time in this transition. Um, Elymas Magus is opposing them. Elymas the magician uses his influence with the proconsul to what the text says, turn him from the faith. Turn him from the faith. Now I present to you that what Elymas was doing was not to try to turn the proconsul, turn Paulus away from having any faith. He wasn't doing that. Have faith. He wasn't saying you can't have any faith. He wants them to wants him to stay away from the faith. He's not opposed to faith. He's opposed to the faith. The Christian faith. The body of doctrine concerning Jesus Christ crucified, risen, ascended, and coming again. Elymas wants to turn him away from the faith. He's just like the world today. Have faith all you want. Just don't mess with the Christian faith. Faith is a touchy-feely concept for most of the world. Faith is not something that's easily defined for most of the world. So it's touted by celebrity. It's touted and embraced even by politicians. Faith. But the faith, the objective set of facts about Jesus Christ, the Christian faith must be denied and derided by celebrity and by politician and here by Elymas the magician, the Jewish false prophet. Elymas is here working against Christ. He is anti-gospel. He is actively opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who minister the gospel. He is anti-Christ. Christians, let me say this. We live in a world where the spirit of Antichrist is all around us. Paul and Barnabas did not expect to walk into this place and not have opposition. They had plenty of opposition from elements. Christians, why do we walk through the world as followers of Jesus Christ, as disciples of the Lord Jesus, and we think, Everybody just wants to be happy and get along. They all just want to be my friend. That's foolish. Moving on. Verse 9. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared at him and said. Now, we need to look at this. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Some seeking to justify speaking in tongues, modern day speaking in tongues from the Bible and make more of speaking in tongues than the scripture makes of it. Some have said this is Paul speaking in tongues. Paul 
filled with the Holy Spirit, said. There's not even a hint here that Paul's language, his speech, is in any way different from the normal speech that everyone else there had. This is not that. This is not speaking in tongues. This is Paul filled with the Holy Spirit speaking plainly. But why are we told that Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit? We've already seen the Holy Spirit all over this thing. The Holy Spirit said set them aside. The Holy Spirit sent them out. This is clearly under the authority and the, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Why here do we read Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, it informs us. It informs us. Remember, Paul was one of the best educated men around. He was skilled in the scriptures of the Old Testament. He was a gifted teacher. Paul's talents as a leader and as a man of excellence were evident from the time that he was in the Sanhedrin, from the time that he was a Pharisee. Think about the greatness of the man. Now that talented, gifted man of excellence is about to speak. And the text tells us, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's to let us know that Paul is not relying on his education. Paul is not relying. He's not self-confident. He's not speaking from the flesh. He says later, if anyone has reason to, to boast in the flesh, it's I, I've got that reason. But he is not relying on the flesh. Paul is submitted to and resting in and dependent on the Holy Spirit. Paul. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Another reason that we have this here, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, is because some of us will not like what we read in the next verse. Some of us will not like what he says. It surprises me in my ministry which has been primarily, if not exclusively, in conservative churches among Christians who claim to believe in the plenary inspiration of Scripture, in inerrancy and infallibility, and all of those things that are true and that we profess. But I have still heard those people say, well, Paul was just a male chauvinist. He was probably just hurt or emotionally scarred. They criticize the Pauline scriptures as though Paul alone is the author. Like they're not written by the Holy Spirit. Like this is not the word of God. It's just Paul's opinion. Brothers and sisters, count it a blessing that we don't have one scrap of anything that Paul ever wrote except what was inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
So we don't have to keep up with, well, when Paul said this, he meant this, and when Paul said that. And by the way, if you read in the scripture, the Lord says to you, but I say to you, don't you dare think. The Lord says to you, we've got to do that, but I say to you, that's just Paul's opinion. It's all inspired. If you need some help with that, I'll be glad to help you work through it and what that means. No, no, let's do it now. The Lord said to you, let me quote Jesus. But I say to you, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is still the word of God, this. This is a quote, and this is not, and it's all the word of God. How many of us need to hear that this is God's word? Paul, as we read what he said, you may not like it. But Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can't just take parts of the Bible and reject it. Some of you need to hear that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can better cope with what he says to Elymas. Because some believe that Christians, especially Christian preachers like Paul and Barnabas, we only need to speak of love, God's love. Jesus loves you. Now, let us love everyone. End of message. Some of us think that's the whole thing. There's love and there's nothing else. Some of you would come to Elymas who was strongly fighting against the gospel work and you would invite him to coffee. Elymas, we're not your enemies. And we're not here to make enemies. We just want to speak of love and acceptance and we just we want everyone to, to hear that you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't want to change you. We don't want to change things. We just want to present an alternate way. Please hear us out. Let us make our presentation. You be nice and we'll be nice. And we'll present a nice message to the proconsul. He'll be nice and it'll all be nice. Some people think that Christianity is nice. So let's read these nice words. <laughs> you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now friends, this is not slander. He's not making up stuff. This is not defamation of character. This is truth. Paul does not attack Elymas with falsehood or with lies or with slander. He speaks the truth with boldness. And it's not nice. But friends, God is not nice. God is good. God is righteous. God is thrice holy. Jesus speaks and says he is the truth. God cannot lie. God is benevolent. God is patient. God's loving kindness is beyond measure. His mercies are new every morning. But God is not nice like we define nice. Politically correct. Fitting all the, the buzzwords of our day. 
God wasn't that way then and he's not that way now. These words from Paul filled with the Holy Spirit are ben benevolent words. They're not nice, but they're good. They're good words. These words were good for those who heard. These words were good for the proconsul to hear. Uh, think of it as an introduction to the triune God. Not nice, but good. These words were good for anyone who was standing around to hear. They were good words. Those people who heard needed to hear the condemnation of Elymas as a false prophet, as an enemy of righteousness. This goes for the governor as well. He needed to hear that. This was good for them to hear. All who heard Paul's harsh words were better for having heard it. These words were necessary for Elymas to hear. The magician, the false prophet. It was necessary for him to hear. Because he, he heard them in one of two ways. He either heard these harsh words of Paul as an instrument that would lead to his repentance. Or else he heard these words of condemnation. Words that would serve as witnesses for his eternal damnation. He heard them in one of those ways. Either way, Paul was obliged to say them and it was necessary that Elymas heard them. One last way that these words are good to hear. These words are good for us to hear, Christians. We need to know Elymas was a blasphemer and we need to know that blasphemers should be silenced. The fear of God cannot be legislated. It cannot be forced on someone. And there are times when we, when we have to say nothing. Sometimes that's the right move. But often when we hear someone opposing Jesus Christ and encouraging others to oppose Christ, when they are blaspheming the Holy Spirit, the Holy Scripture, then we must say something. Not mean. And I don't mean be nice. I just mean don't bring your own meanness. The word of God offends. You let the word of God offend. And you bring no extra offense. We've got to move on. These words. As affirmation. That these words were not because Paul was having a bad day, not because he was just in a mood. We read he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and as further affirm, affirmation, there's a sign that comes along. Verse 11. Now behold, this is Paul speaking to Elymas. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is on you. Who's doing this? Whose message is this and who's doing this? Paul? No, the hand of the Lord is on you. Often we hear the words, the hand of the Lord is on you. We think that's a good thing and a blessing. And sometimes it is for God's people. It is for Elymas. It was not. The hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind for a time and immediately a mist darkness fell on him and he went about looking for somebody. 
This sign shows that Paul speaks for God. This is before he could say, if you'll all turn in your New Testament to the book of and turn to the passages that say, this is before the closing of Scripture. This is before the, the doctrines of God in the New Testament could be used to identify false prophets. So the Holy Spirit worked immediately without the medium of Scripture. The Holy Spirit worked immediately without means to speak through Paul. We no longer have a need for this because we have the scripture. At that time, this sign affirmed that Paul's words were being sent from God. They were God's words. And this sign shows us that opposition to the gospel has consequences. We need to be careful here because sometimes in this world, we look around and we don't see temporal earthly right now consequences for opposition to the gospel. But this sign reminds us that there is always consequences for those who oppose the gospel. You may not oppose the gospel like elements. You may not see the sign immediately, but there are always, you may not see the, the consequences immediately, but there are always consequences. For those who oppose the gospel. Elemis opposed the gospel straightforward, face to face, as it were. You may not oppose the gospel like that. You may only refuse to come to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. But your refusal to repent and believe in that, what you're really saying is Jesus is not the only way to God, Christ is not the only Savior. You're saying in your, in your denial of Christ that you're not a sinner deserving hell and in need of a savior. There are only two kinds of people. Those who are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who oppose it. Many who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ say, I'm not against, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an enemy of God. Scripture says you are. There are those who are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ and there are those who oppose it. The temporal consequences of opposing the gospel, the temporal, earthly, right now consequences are sometimes not seen, but the eternal consequences are sure and lasting. In this passage, the temporal consequences is the blinding it's interesting that Saul was persecuting the church and on the road to Damascus, he was knocked off his horse. And what happened? He was blinded. And now the same man, now a Christian, performs his first miracle and it's calling blindness on someone. Even in this consequence for Elemas opposing the gospel, we see a measure of mercy. What does it say? You will be blind. You will not see the sun for a time. For a time. That's mercy. God struck this antichrist enemy of righteousness with blindness, which is very fitting for a lost man. 
But Elymas would regain his sight after a time. Don't think that because God shows mercy in the temporal, in the here and now on earth, don't think that because God shows mercy now that his mercy will continue in eternity for those who reject Christ. God is present everywhere. And God is present in hell, but only a portion of God's attributes will be on display in hell. Attributes like justice, wrath, the consuming fire of God will be seen every moment in the torments of hell. But the attributes of love and compassion and grace and mercy that we are accustomed to seeing every day will never be seen in hell. <clears throat> what would this do for elements? Would, would he, I mean, Saul was persecuting Christ. He was blinded and he came to faith. Would Elymas come to faith in Jesus Christ because of these words and sign from Paul? The providence of God works. The providence of God works in all who the Lord is saving to open their spiritual eyes, to bring them to faith and repentance. But the same exact works of providence in those who are not being saved serve as a means of hardening, of further alienating men from God. You preach the same gospel and some come to Christ in faith and repentance and some leave hating God more. We might like to think that Elymas being humbled by this time of blindness and these words of Paul turns to Jesus repenting of his sin. But it's likely that if that had happened, we would be reading about it in this passage. Elymas probably did not come to faith in Christ. And that is what it is to oppose Jesus Christ and his gospel. But we have the exact same words that were spoken by Paul, the exact same circumstances, the exact same provident hand of God, which blinded and hardened Elymas, opened the eyes and saved another. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord I wrote in my notes, Elymas believed. He did not. Elymas rejected Christ. Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, believed. He became a Christian. And don't read this verse, Christians, and say, well, it says here, Sergius Paulus saw how Elymas was blinded and he saw the miracles, the wonders that were done and those miraculous works changed his heart. That's not what happened and that's not what we have here. Men's hearts are not changed by miracles. 
the text says Paulus was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. It's the word of God. Specifically, the preaching of the word, the gospel proclamation. That is what changed Sergius Paulus. That's what changed his heart. That's what brought him to faith. What do you call salvation separated from the word of God? That is a fantasy. That does not exist. And it's true for every person who is saved. Every person who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. friend of ours, I say ours, a friend of many of ours, used to say that every Christian's testimony is the same. I heard the word. I believe the word. I love the word. Every Christian's testimony. Some of you remember Dave saying that. Paul will later say that it is the gospel of Christ that is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Church family, this is why at Waco family, we preach that the church cannot be carried away into other stuff. We can't be carried away into miraculous works or into humanitarian works or by any other good thing which men should do as good things. The church cannot be taken off course to do other good things. The church must stay focused on the gospel. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing but Christ and him crucified. The faith is laid out. The faith is laid out in the pages of scripture. It's summarized in our creeds and confessions. We must stay at the work of the gospel. Lastly, note just the last few verses, the last few words of verse 12. Being amazed at the teaching of Paul. Being amazed at the logic and reason of the argument. No, it says here, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Sergius Paulus was not saved because Paul and Barnabas and John Mark spoke and he heard their words. He wasn't saved by hearing them. He was saved because he heard the Lord Jesus. He heard the teaching of the Lord. Sinners today, will you hear the teaching of the Lord? Come to Jesus Christ in repentant faith and be saved today. Christians, let us be reminded of how we heard the voice of Christ. How we were saved by his marvelous grace. Church, let us be resolved to keep our work and our words and all our focus on the word of the Lord. Let us give careful attention to the public reading of scripture to the preaching and to the teaching of it until our Lord returns. Father, we pray that you'd apply these words to our heart. We do pray that you would save sinners. God, that you'd sanctify your church. We ask this in Jesus' name.
invite our ushers.